Did America fail? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Dennis Rasmussen. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Dennis Rasmussen. Dennis is a political theorist whose research focuses primarily on the Enlightenment, the American founding, and the virtues and shortcomings of liberal democracy and market capitalism. He received his PhD from Duke University in 2005 and his BA from Michigan State University's James Madison College in 2000, and he has also held position at Tufts University, the University of Houston, Brown University, and Bowdoin College. He's the author of more than just a couple of books, and one of them, Fears of a Setting Sun, The Delusionment of America's Founders, will serve as the foundation for our discussion today. Dennis, welcome to The Curious Task. Pleased to be here. Thanks. It's great to have you on. Again, actually. In each episode, we ask a question and go wherever the answers take us. Today, our question that frames our episode is, is did America fail? And then, of course, that's a great angle to take this question from. One, one, one of the great angles to take this question from is your book. And, and your book, Fears of a Setting Sun, sort of addresses a bit of this, at least the seeds of the conversation. It, it talks about key founding father, fathers and their ideas and what their attitudes were in their lives about the trajectory of the country. Uh, so I think we can just jump right into that. But be, before we get too far, I want to say the book is called Fears of a Setting Sun. Tell us the story about the namesake of the book and, and where the sun metaphor comes. And, and please don't ruin what you said at the end of the book, because I want to get to that later. Okay, sure. So the the um, allusion in the title is to a little um, story, a little vignette from the Philadelphia Convention, the Constitutional Convention of 1787 that formed the Constitution. So the story goes, and we have this from James Madison's notes from the convention, The story goes that on the last day of the convention, September 17th, when the delegates were lining up to sign the document, uh, Benjamin Franklin called attention to the chair that George Washington had sat in at the room all summer. So George Washington was the president of the convention, and he sat in this high-backed mahogany chair that had a little sort of decorative half-sunburst carved into the crest. And so Franklin drew people's attention, some of the other delegates' attention to this sun. And he said, you know, throughout this summer, as we've been debating, I've been wondering whether this sun, this half sun, was a rising or a setting sun. And I was never sure. But now at length, I have the happiness to know that it is is a rising and not a setting sun. And so this became known as the rising sun chair. You can still see it on display at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. And it's really a kind of a symbol of the optimism that the founders felt at the birth of the new nation. They're the idea that, you know, they had created this new government based on new principles that they hoped would not only endure, but serve as a model for all peoples everywhere. And so the title, Fears of a Setting Sun, alludes to the fact that by the end of their lives, almost none of the founders felt that same optimism. Um, Franklin himself only lived to see the Constitution in action for a year or so, so he didn't really have the time to become disillusioned. But virtually all of the major founders besides him, who did live to the end of the 19th century, or even to the dawn of the new century, like George Washington, came to feel 
deep anxiety, uh, disappointment, and even despair about the government and the country they'd helped to create. So the, the idea is that they, they'd feared the sun that was rising at the time of the Constitutional Convention was setting by the end of their lives. Great. No, I think that that provides an excellent platform for our conversation. And we'll, we'll park the, the sun part for now because I want to come back to that. But but in the meantime, so and you were just touching on this. So, you know, we generally do hear, of course, about the, the founding fathers and their optimism at at the birth of the Constitution, if you will, when the Constitutional Convention was happening. But 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 it seems that that sort of idea, that mood, especially the way the stories are told in American mythology, if, if you will, sort of is the, the, the idea and the pictures painted that this lasted th- throughout all their lives. People that didn't investigate this too far might feel that everyone just sort of went to sleep and passed on to the next world and they thought everything was just hunky-dory. Why do you think that this, this attitude of this overall sort of fairy tale of, of optimism uh, persists about, in some circles about the founding fathers and that people didn't really want to go in and dig into that too much? I mean, like a lot of the, found, the granted a lot of the work around the founders' lives focuses on the constitutional uh, side of it, uh, you know, and, and you pointed out that's around 70, 1775 to 1791 in your book. Is that the reason? Is there something else more going on there? You seem to want to focus at a different part of their lives. So, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Why why do you think that we don't talk as much about what your book talks about? Well, I mean, partly, surely, it's just that there are, you know, whether you want to call it patriotic or hagiographic reasons that, that Americans like to focus on the uplifting story of the country's founding. And, you know, many Americans still believe in American exceptionalism, that this is a different, you know, uniquely uh, unique country that, that, um, uh, that was founded on these unique principles. And so, um, yeah, so so the the optimistic side of the founding plays plays into that, but I also do think you know in some ways it's natural that we would when we look at the founders we look at the founding right we look at the their efforts what you might call the heroic deeds in founding the republic which was a, in many ways an unprecedented thing and you know this is when you know Americans still live by this charter that they created right there are very good reasons why we care about what they were thinking as they were writing the Constitution it just seems to me that you know, they kept on living. Right? They didn't They didn't all die in 1791. They kept on living and they got to see what life was like under this constitution that they created. And so it's really striking that many of their minds were very changed by the end, that we, we shouldn't just confine our views to this single snapshot, this single moment in time. We should expand our understanding of um who the founders were and what their their thought included, and, and just to carry carry that forward in our own timeline here in this conversation, I find it interesting that you you sort of lay the foundation for this at the beginning of your book, and then point out like, more than a couple times, I think that although there was great optimism at the beginning, it was clear that the founders did indeed still feel, even in that optimistic phase, if you will, of their thinking, that this was indeed an experiment. This wasn't just a fairy tale that they set up and it was great. Even before some of the pessimism set in, or some of the fears, if you will, which we will get to later, uh, set in, there was still a bit of ambivalence in some of the writings and still a, a bit of a tentativeness, if you will. That's absolutely right. And, you know, I think the the um, Franklin quip, which, which is a relatively famous one, does paper over a lot of pretty deep disappointment. I think, you know, James Madison, who we think of as the quote-unquote father of the Constitution, was deeply disappointed when he left the Philadelphia Convention. Right. Hamilton, maybe even more so. Um, when John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, who of course weren't at the convention, they were the, the ministers to uh, France and, and England, um, when they received their copies of the Constitution, their attitudes were mixed at best. So the founders were not um, 
they, they didn't even leaving the convention feel had this overwhelming feeling like that we have solved the problem. They all had gripes. Sometimes there were very different gripes from one another, but they all had reservations about what they had done. And then they just, for almost all of them, became deeper over time. Of course, not as you said, not all the founders of the people involved in the Constitutional Convention and so on did did live into the uh, the 19th century, into the 1800s. But one one kind of part I like you did in the introduction of your book is that uh, you sort of obviously painted that turn of the century as, as also a turn turning point in some of the mood in the country and, and, and some of these thoughts as well. Like uh, one part I know you said, you know, you're basically saying it wasn't all roses even at the end of the 1700s, right? Uh, right before the, the turn of the 19th century said, quote, members of Congress brawled on the floor of the House of Representatives with Cain and fire pokers and violent mobs roaming the streets of Philadelphia induced President Adams at the time to smuggle arms into the executive mansion. So even before we get to some of these later writings and moods, that's where you start to see the seeds of these things pop up, right? I think, again, there's the thought, there's the conversation about what the founders thought and their optimism and, and, you know, and and their attitudes, but there's also the overall prevailing attitude in the country and and the mood. And that was clearly changing as well towards the 1700s on on some issues and towards the end of the 1700s, I should say. That's right. I mean, the 1790s were a time of pretty bitter partisanship, pretty bitter conflict um, of a kind that the framers, I think, didn't really foresee or anticipate the, the rise of political parties coming so soon. And then, yes, that by the end of the 1790s, between the Alien and Sedition Acts on the Federalist side, the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions on the Republican side, both were both sides were pretty extreme in, in various ways. Um, I, heard, I forget where I, I heard this quip. Somebody said that George Washington died in late December 1799. And it was as almost as if he his body said, nope, that's it. I'm not going to live into the 19th century. I get, I'm done. You know, the, the 18th century is my thing. I'm not, you know, and he does, you know, one has to be thankful for uh, on Washington's behalf that he didn't live to see Thomas Jefferson's presidency. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's definitely a man of that century. Let's put it that way. Right. Um, okay. Okay. So like, I want to jump into, a, you know, you've alluded to it a couple of times and I think we traced a, again, a good platform for the rest of the discussion. Uh, your book primarily focuses on uh, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and, and, and James Madison. And obviously in our conversation today, um, we, we can't go through everything and then talk about every chapter in there, but I, I did want to, do something a little fun. I wanted to trace some of the the backgrounds of, of some of these folks and provide some context to w- which we will then do pr- uh, get into some of their thoughts and some of their reservations and some of their fears of, of the setting sun, if you will. And again, that's not to say we do a biography of each one, but I think you tracing a bit of their background of their experiences, but uh, but then applying that to their fears. I think it's very interesting. I like how the book traces some of these characters and their backgrounds and then talks about, you know, what, why, where, where some of those seeds for their potential fears were laid. So, so I'd like to start with, with Washington. And again, I know it sounds silly to, for me to say, Dennis, tell us about George Washington as if that hasn't been done before, but, but perhaps trace a bit of his background and then connect that up with what his fears were and, and how his background played into that. Okay, right. So for each of the four major thinkers, so Madison's an outlier, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get to. So the four major figures who are disillusioned, who I, I focus on their disillusionment, Washington, Hamilton, Adams, and Jefferson, for each one, there's a particular theme that that goes along with their disillusionment. Because as I tried to show in the book, they, they grew to despair for the country at different times and for different reasons. Um, so for Washington, the theme is really parties and partisanship, the rise of, of factions, as he uh, sometimes called them. Um, and this was a, something that he always feared. So he feared it even coming up in the um, Virginia House of Burgesses and the colonial government um, was, I think most historians would say, one of the least faction-ridden times and places in colonial America. And so he he kind of got this vision that 
Republican government could work without party or without much in the way of party. And then he was utterly convinced of this by his um, command of the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. So the, it was some of the partisan bickering within the Continental Congress that kept him from getting the money and the troops that he needed to, to win the war. And so he really thought that for any grand undertaking, whether it was winning independence or, or you know, forming a new government, you needed people to put the you know parochial interest aside because this was really his vision was that partisans are partial right they focus on the good of some parochial group whatever group that might be over the public good and so they're not disinterested patriots of the kind they didn't exhibit the kind of disinterested virtue that he prized and he thought that they would also tear the country apart. He, he really worried and this is in some ways a stock theme of 18th century discourse everybody claim to be opposed to factions, but Washington really was. I mean, he was very sincere and very consistent about this. His belief that um, factions sow conflict, uh, kind of divide the community, uh, um, split people apart, that also by having a standing opposition party is going to prevent the government from being administered well or administered effectively, that it opens the door for corruption, especially for foreign intrigue, right? The, you know, if you have one party in power that's friendly to France or to England or whatever it might be, um, that, that foreign nations would come to meddle in, in American politics. And so he warned against what he called the demon of party spirit. I use it as one of my chapter titles was, was fatal to Republican politics. And of course, as I've already hinted, they arose pretty much not, maybe not the first year, but the, within the first few years of the new nation's founding. And as, as, as we were saying, so towards the end of his life, I guess, especially, you know, I think there was a story I hadn't noted here where he had at one point in, in one of his lower points, obviously in a not so good mood about this, told someone that he, he didn't think that the, the constitution would last beyond 20 years, even, even in the sort of towards that middle or beginning part. So, um, you know, that, that's, that's very interesting. I, I find and as well, like I forget it was in the Washington books, uh, section, sorry, specifically, but I remember there, you're, you're explaining one of the scenes. I forgot exactly what it was but you're saying you know it got so bad at this period of time where like you know like it was like it was almost like a daily thing that people just said that the other party or the people that belong to group you know you're treasonous like that was just kind of normal right this is sort of where we got to so washington is somebody looking at this before the turn of the century it's just that that's obviously quite troubling for someone who is as you said so sincerely convinced that partisanship's a bad thing right so both sides saw each other as basically illegitimate right so the federalists thought that the republicans were basically unreconstructed anti-federalists, meaning that they opposed the constitution, they opposed the government under which um, they were then living, um, that they wanted to go back to the chaos of the Articles of Confederation. Whereas on the other side, the Republicans saw the federalists as quasi-monarchists, that they wanted to go back before 1776, right? And, and kind of put a new crown on, have a new King George, right? Put a crown right. on Washington's head and and introduce the, the English system. And so both sides saw each other as anti-American, anti-Republican, which ironically made the partisanship all the more bitter, right? If you see the other side is entirely illegitimate, then you think that it's okay to go to pretty great lengths to, to and to try to stamp them out, right? And so this was the kind of thing that Washington found so troubling, even during his presidency. I mean, the, the two sides were led by two members of his own cabinet, Secretary of Treasury, and Federalist Alexander Hamilton and Secretary of State and Republican Thomas Jefferson. Um, and it just got worse over the course of his second term. And during his retirement, it hit its peak during the, the so-called quasi-war with France, um, where Washington 
pretty inadvisedly, I think, came out of his retirement to at least nominally head the new army that was being formed to, to head off the threat, what the, the Federalists took to be the threat of a French invasion. Um, and he really became, I think, a pretty blinkered partisan himself. He, he had always striven as president to be above party, but by the end, I think he even he wasn't. And, and even like it's some of like the, the, the basic timeline on George Washington, I found is not not in this book, of course, but as I've read other sources or even just just heard about the stories, like, you know, a very superficial take, especially with, with at the point of George Washington's life where he has uh, stepped down from the presidency and, and stepped away from that. Often that's sort of told um in, in in some ways and in some instances with this idea that there was such a, a rigor of principle there. He stood up, gave his speech, you know, uh, you know, and, and so on and so forth. But but there was also another aspect going on there that your book highlights well, but he was just fed up as well. It wasn't just this this pure principled idea, I shouldn't lead too long and so on and so forth. There was a lot of, okay, maybe I step a bit back from this mess too as well. Yes, I have often have students ask, you know, why did George Washington step down after two terms? And my answer is always that because he couldn't step down after one. <laughs> he, did, he, he really didn't want to be president at all, right? Um, and and he hoped to step down even before the first term ended. But of course, the, the kind of pull of events took him through the end of his first term. And he announced his intention to his cabinet that he, he was going to retire after the first term. And they all basically said immediately, no, you can't. That This is the one thing they could all agree on is that with Washington's you know, he's a larger than life presence, even during his lifetime with his, his unifying presence at the helm, the country would hang together, but, but without him, it would split apart. So they, they ultimately convinced him to stay on for a second term. But by the end of the second term, he, he couldn't wait to get out of the, the executive mansion. There was nothing he wanted more than to, to get out of politics, which he saw as just um, utterly unlike what his ideal had been going in. I'd like to shift gear, gears to Hamilton. But before we do, before we put the uh, Washington section aside, how would you say, of course, I don't mean to the last minute of his life, but but that, that last chunk of his life there, before we move on from the Washington part of the conversation, obviously he, he passed on th- thinking what? What would the reader learn from your book that his sort of feelings at that time would have been? Um, the last few years of his life, he felt that partisanship had pervaded not just um, the upper reaches of American government, as he thought it was early on, but the whole population. So um, I take the, the last chapter of the, so I have a set of three chapters on each of the main figures. So the, the third and final chapter on Washington is called Set Up a Broomstick. And that's taken from a line that he he wrote to um, a friend where he said, you know, somebody was trying to convince him, this is in 1799, as the appro- election of 1800 was approaching, many Federalists were trying to draft him back out of retirement to, to take another third term because they didn't think John Adams could win re-election. Um, and he, of course, adamantly refused. But one of his reasons for refusing is he said, it's not individuals and their virtues, it's parties and their platforms that win um, elections now. So he said, even I don't think I would win a single vote from what he called the anti-federal side, meaning the Jeffersonian Republican side. He said at, at one point in this letter that um, if the Republicans were to set up a broomstick and call it a Democrat or a true son of liberty or whatever name suit their purpose, it would command their votes in toto. So again, character doesn't matter. It's all party. Um, so that's why he he ended up um, pretty pretty distraught with what he had wrought. He, he had always said that Republican politics couldn't survive if it was dominated by parties. And by the end, he 
realized it was dominated by parties. And, and shifting gears to Hamilton, one, one of the reasons why I want to highlight Hamilton too and, and have you trace his background and, and that, of this ambitious upstart, as you said in the book, which is something Jefferson didn't like very much, um, um, is that uh, here's somebody who was unhappy with the Constitution, unhappy with the way things were going, but because in some ways he didn't think that the federal government and some of the, the pockets of power, were, they, he didn't think that they were powerful enough. That's right. So that's the theme. If the theme of the, the Washington chapters is parties and partisanship, the theme of the Hamilton chapter is that he just never thought the federal government was sufficiently energetic or vigorous, especially in comparison to the state governments. So he was, of the founders, he's easily the most unabashed proponent of a strong centralized authority, which of course ran entirely counter to the whole intellectual culture that had fueled the revolution, right? Which was, you know, we don't want to be governed by elites in a far off distant city, off in London, we want to govern ourselves. And similarly, people felt after the revolution, well, we don't want to be governed by elites in New York, where the first capital was, or eventually in Washington, we want to govern ourselves. Hamilton always thought that the preservation of liberty demanded a centralized government. You needed a powerful national government to avoid all the kinds of problems that had emerged under the Articles of Confederation and you know, avoid Shays' Rebellion and, and all the kinds of things that he thought were were dangerous to individual liberty. So it strikes, I, I'm guessing for many listeners to this podcast, it will c- come as a strange thing to, to say, we want a more powerful central government and, and centralized government to safeguard individual liberty. But that's exactly what, what Hamilton thought. Um, he didn't think the constitution went nearly far enough in doing this. At the very end of the convention, he, he said at one point, and this too is a chapter title, he said, no man's ideas are farther from the plan that is the constitution than mine are. Um, so he he really felt even going in to the new government that it wasn't strong enough, vigorous enough. And he spent his whole career trying to build it up, but he was never really satisfied that he'd done enough. We'll, we'll get to Jefferson more specifically in a sec, but still within the context of the Hamilton part of the conversation and also tying actually a bit back to Washington, too, who got to see some of this these factionalism and entrenchpositions. There's there's a discussion as well that Hamilton and Jefferson couldn't even be in the same room at some points. Like they needed Washington there to mediate their, their own behavior because, again, Hamilton had had this strong vision and this idea for forever based on everything you just said. And there's just other people that were so entrenched in other different directions, especially specifically with Jefferson. So so even there, there's that friction there within the cabinet. Absolutely. I mean, they hated one another, Hamilton and Jefferson did. And I think this comes out in the musical, if anyone has, has seen the musical or listened to the um, listened to the soundtrack. Um, the, so in part of it was very personal, right? The, as you suggested at the outset, um, Jefferson saw um, Hamilton as a presumptuous upstart who's trying to exalt himself above his proper station, when in reality, he's this self-made immigrant, right? He's born in the Caribbean and kind of makes his own way in the world. Right. And Jefferson very self-consciously casts himself as he's the, the, the apostle of humble farmers, when in reality, of course, he's a very rich, well-connected slaveholder. And, and so Hamilton takes his, his uh, self-presentation as sheer hypocrisy. So they hate one another on a personal level. Of course, the, there's a lot more to it than that, right? The, their policy views are almost diametrically opposed. Hamilton wants to build up the federal government as much as he can, or the national government as much as he can, and in particular, the executive, whereas Jefferson wants to enhance the power of the states at the expense of the federal government. He's especially worried about executive power. He he would rather have more power in Congress, which he sees as the people's branch. they had very different visions of America in terms of economics. You know, Hamilton very much embraced the idea of a, you know, 
what we would now call a capitalist urban future, a commercial commercial society, whereas Jefferson thought that was the sure road to corruption, that, you know, farming was the, the road to, to simplicity and virtue and keeping Republican the Republican spirit alive. Um, so yeah, on, on both the level of politics and personality, they just couldn't have been more opposed to one another. And um, Jefferson described them as daily pitted in the cabinet like two cocks, right? They're just going at it and, and only Washington can um, keep them reasonably restrained. I mean, I, I just don't think there's any way they would have lasted in the cabinet together as long as they did. I think it was five years or so um, without Washington there to... Um, Kind of soothe their their tempers a bit, and and for the Hamilton side side of the equation, we'll, of course, we'll talk about Jefferson in a little bit. But uh, so as uh, towards the end of his life and, and in the latter part of his, all of his trials and tribulations and, and his views on the Republic, what what were his sort of parting thoughts to the world, if you will, at that last section of his life and, and his ideas of of uh, from his perspective, uh, why think why why he wasn't so hot on the Republic, basically. Right. So he, as I suggest, he didn't think the the. Um, Federal government was powerful enough at the outset. He spent the whole of the 1790s as the very powerful first treasury secretary trying to build up the government as much as he could, especially while George Washington was in the president's chair and he's this great hero and nobody would object that much. But he was never really satisfied that he'd done enough, right? Jefferson and Madison and the Republicans were always there kind of hounding him, keeping him from realizing the full extent of his vision. And then, of course, at the end of the decade, his arch enemy Jefferson is elected president with a mandate to pare down the government's power still further. And so this is when he really goes into a state of despondency. He, of course, dies quite young. He's felled by Vice President Aaron Bull's bullet at the age of, I think it was 44. He's still in his 40s. Um, it's, it's, at any rate, it's 1804 is when he dies. Um, and those last four years, while, while the Republicans are in power and, and before his death, he's really you know, he's only in his 40s, but he's feels like and is an outmoded has-been. He's a kind of relic of the past. The, the Federalists are, are basically powerless by, by this point. And so his letters are full of statements about how, you know, he says at one point, in one of his final letters written to Governor Morris, he calls the Constitution a frail and worthless fabric. And he says that this American world is not made for me. So he expects that basically little but disillusion and disorder can be expected from, from there on out. As you're sort of talking through this, and I definitely encourage all the listeners to, to get your book and check this out because it's really interesting stuff. But um, so, some people might think sight unseen without seeing these kind of quotes and the great things you pull from their personal letters and so on that, you know, oh, you know, they probably had some complaints. They jotted them out. These are rational people but some of this stuff is very theatric, right? Like you can almost picture people animatedly throwing themselves on a couch with their hand on their head kind of thing. Like a lot of this stuff is very, these quotes and these great things you have in the book, this isn't just, oh, I have some critiques about the Republic. It's, it's very much like we're doomed. This is going this way. So like I, I find these people very energetically felt this too, right? It wasn't just so much of, ah, I got some problems. Right. I mean, and sometimes it seems almost hysterical. It's hard to believe, you know, the, 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 they seem so overwrought that it's hard to believe. And I find that really striking, right? They, they, they're all keenly aware that their letters, their correspondence is going to be poured over by future generations. I mean, they, they say this many times. They right. say, we know what we're writing here, you know, when Adams and Jefferson are taking up their famous correspondence toward the end of their life. They know exactly that people are going to be reading this, you know, decades, if not centuries. Thence. And they're not even trying to hide it, right? The, it's something that is really there on, you know, 
dozens and dozens of, of quotations. It's not something that I'm I'm pulling threads and you know here are one or two hints here. I mean it's it's all over their their writings in, in very, as you suggest, kind of overwrought terms. And with that we will take our quick break. So everyone you're listening to Curious Task, I'm speaking with Dennis Rasmussen today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Elizabeth Aragona, Janet Bufton, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Dennis Rasmussen today. So, so Dennis, uh, I thought the first half of our episode was great together. I, I enjoyed going through uh, some of the thoughts and discussions on, on Washington and Hamilton. We obviously touched on Jefferson because when you talk about Hamilton, you, you can't not do so. So let's let's go to that one next then. So, so Jefferson, this one I found very interesting because you, you said that, you know, ultimately until the final decade of his life, this is someone who at least before that final decade, like, you know, had, had this, quote, bottomless faith. Like this was somebody who at the outset wasn't as as much as in a way sort of as ambivalent or hesitant in, on some issues as some of the other founders. He, he was radically optimistic, had big faith in the people, faith in sort of a populist idea. And then, of course, there was sort of that switch at the end, too. So, so why don't we trace that out a bit? This, this is one of the more interesting switches, I think, or radical switches in the timeline that you draw. That's right. I think this is easily the most surprising of all the, the um, figures to have become disillusioned because he was, for the vast majority of his career, just relentlessly optimistic about the American experiment and the American people. He believed wholeheartedly in what we would now call American exceptionalism, that America was a uniquely virtuous country with uniquely virtuous citizens. Um, so that even when he had misgivings, so during the 1790s, you know, he didn't like Hamilton. He didn't like Hamilton's financial plan. He sure didn't like the Alien and Sedition Acts toward the end of the decade. Um, but through it all, despite all these misgivings, he was always convinced that things would turn out right. He was convinced that the American people were at the bottom of their hearts good small R Republicans and also good capital R Republicans, that is to say <laughs> Jeffersonian Republicans, that they, basically they were all with him in their hearts. And then he was thought he was proven right. In the election of 1800, he became president. The Republicans swept to power in both houses of Congress. And he thought, you know, I've been proven right after all. He sent all kinds of sort of self-congratulatory letters to, to his friends saying, you know, the ship is in port. We made it after all. America won, right? We, we survived those, those the Federalists and, and their corrupt ways. And, and now, now we can kind of sail off into the sunset. And for a long time, he believed that. He, through his presidency, through most of Madison's presidency following him, he still clung to this idea that America's future was, was if not perfect, at least very bright. Um, it was really only the last, I'd say, decade or so of his life. So from 1816 to 1826 that, that he lost heart. Um, there are a bunch of actually reasons for this. Um, part of it was the rise of commerce and banks and speculation that he found so off-putting. Um, he didn't like the, the Supreme Court under Chief Justice John Marshall. He thought was usurping power. There are all kinds of um, reasons why he, he uh, started to be, become worried about the American experiment. But really the main one, I think, the key one, so that the sort of theme of the Jefferson chapters 
is the worries about sectional division. That is the division between North and South over the spread of slavery, which he thought, I guess rightly as it turned out, would split the country apart. He, he all but prophesied the path of the Civil War um, in some of his late letters. And, and, and ultimately grafted onto that was, was the, the, the fear and, and, and the worries he had about like more centralized pockets of power. As you said, like part of that was the commerce and, the and, the, and private institution angle, but also, you know, Back to that Hamilton theme too, right? Like he he didn't like what he was seeing at some parts of his life with with the, the the government increasing in its power either. Right, and this is despite the fact that it's basically a one party rule at this point. It's all Jeffersonians. It's all Republicans in in basically every office besides the Supreme Court. Every part of the the federal government is run by Republicans, and yet he sees them by the end of his life as basically Federalists and another guys that they're all consolidating power too much. Um, to the point where at the very end of his life, the past couple of years, he, you know, all but embraces disunion. He he really suggests that, you know, if you have to choose between consolidation or disunion, disunion might be preferable. And he thought that consolidation was all but upon them. So he's really, um, I think, even more of an alarmist than the others are. Towards, I picked up on something in one of the chapters there towards towards the end of his life there. Like, you know, this, again, back to the sort of, as you said, the, the wailing and then like sometimes very theatrical points. I think at one point he said to somebody, as the story goes, that he, one of his, he felt that one of the main consolations of all these worries is that he wouldn't li- live long enough to fully weep over the problems that would come later anyway. Yeah. So this is a famous letter to a guy named John Holmes, uh, a Republican member of Congress named John Holmes, where, and he's talking about what was known as the Missouri crisis. This is a question basically of whether Missouri would be admitted to the union as a free state or a slave state. And he says that this question, um, I don't have it in front of me, but he says something like, you know, this whole question awakened me and filled me with terror, like a fire bell in the night. Um, And then, as I say, he all but predicts the path of the civil war. He says, once there's a geographic divide with this deep moral difference between the two sides, everything is going to just mark that line deeper and deeper is never going to go away. And he's, it's it's the most, um, I think, succinct and poignant expression of disillusionment you could ask for. He says, essentially, I'm now going to die believing that everything we fought for was in vain, that everything that the generation of 76 did to secure self-government is just going to be thrown away by this generation. And yes, my only consolation is that I'm not going to live to weep, out, live to weep over the destruction of the Republic. I'd like to shift away from Jefferson and, and get into Adams, but you know, one of the things I find interesting is, of course, is obviously one of the common threads uh, through, through all these discussions here is, is many of the deep worries and the deep um, sort of reservations that some of these uh, founders had about where the country was going and where it was heading and so on and so forth. But but of course, from very different angles, and that's what I found so interesting about the book. Of course, so we we leave someone like Jefferson who at certain points in his life had had very very much of a faith in the in the virtue of the people as you said good good small r and capital r republicans you know these are some folks he had faith in and we and we enter as someone like a john adams who's a ultimate problem as you were saying in the book i guess to sum it up is that he was constantly worried about the virtue of the american people as good old republicans lowercase r that's right so the theme of the the adams chapters is the lack of what he perceived to be as a lack of civic virtue among the people the lack of you know disinterested willing to put the the common good or the public good ahead of one's own good um, and he believed that Republican government required this. And he was actually, I mean, people are surprised when, when I say this, but I think even more than Jefferson, even more than Madison, Adams was the best read of the founders, at least in politics and history and law, right? J- Jefferson was omnivorous. He knew more, you know, science and, you know, all, all kinds of things than, 
than Adams did. But in terms of reading about politics and history, you know, Adams really had no peer. And what he took from all of his study was that Republican government didn't just depend on having the right institutions, the right, you know, governmental structure, but rather it depended on the people's character, that unless the people exhibited a sense of patriotism, of, of duty, that um, that the Republican government couldn't survive for long. And he sort of had some hopes very early on, so during the Revolutionary War itself, that, well, maybe the people, maybe once we have an independent nation, once we set up Republican government, the people will be um, exhibit more virtue. But it really didn't last for long. I, th I think his disillusionment came even earlier than anyone's. I mean, at least by the 1780s, before the Constitution's even written, he had already basically concluded that, that the American people wouldn't, in fact, put the country first or put the public good first. And so his disillusionment lasted for basically a half century. I mean, he, he didn't die till 1826. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't it was just really the tail end. <laughs> five decades. Yes, it, it's not, not a short time. Um, and so there, there are so many very colorful quotes from from Adams. He's by far the funniest of these. I mean, if, if you want to, for, for all of his um, famous kind of irascibility and, and curmudgeonliness, he's also easily the funniest of them. The, some of his lines about the um, kind of viciousness and corruption of the American people are, um, for all the, the complaining that he's doing, is, is actually also funny. Although a lot of these uh you know, founders had different specific hangups and came from different angles about some of the things that they were worried about. One of the things beyond having that despair that united them seems to also be that the the um, the fear and the worry that they, in fact, didn't get those institutions just right. As you said, Adams recognized that it's not just about getting the institutions just right. It's also about having people that have the, quote, virtue and can actually live with these systems. But but in, in either case, all of them seem to be uni unified, again, from different angles on on the idea that they weren't fully happy with the way the Constitution or the very immediate after effects of it were, which ties back to the idea that nobody was ultimately happy with with getting that Constitution, quote, just right from the beginning to begin with. And they had to live with that over time. That seems to be a, a general threat of all of them, regardless of what angle they come from. That's right. And, and, you know, look, in some ways that's inevitable, right? You get a few dozen people in a room, they're not all going to agree. And so, so the Constitution is bound to be uh, a, a compromised document. But it is striking how much it did not meet the the expectations of the, the kind of the big names, the founders who we think of as the founders, right? So there, there are some, you know, Roger Sherman and, you know, some other kind of more minor figures that whose names many Americans wouldn't even recognize. Um, it kind of matched their vision reasonably well. But so for instance, James Madison, some of the biggest things he wanted going into the Constitutional Convention, right? And as you say, we're going to talk about him, and he ends up being the optimist. But still, coming out of the convention, he really wanted the Senate to have proportional rather than equal representation. He really wanted Congress to have a veto over state laws. Um, he really wanted the, a kind of strange council of revision where the executive and the judiciary would team up to have a kind of preemptive uh, kind of sort of combination of veto and judicial review. Um, so he had all these pet projects that none of them bore out. And, and the, the same could be said for all the framers, much less folks like Adams and Jefferson who weren't even there in the room to push their vision. <laughs> right. um, Jefferson's reaction to the constitution when he first saw it was almost entirely negative. He thought that there should be a term limit on the presidency, there should be a bill of rights, there were all these problems with it. And so, yeah, they're, they're all worried about character and they're all worried about institutions and they, they're not 
entirely confident on either score. So, and let's shift gears over to Madison. Uh, I alluded to before you, you just mentioned, you touched on there. So let's get into that. So here's the, the, the exception to the, to the rule we've been establishing in the conversation, isn't he? That's right. And, and, in a I think a sort of surprising way. So first of all, most people I don't think of I don't think uh, when they think of Madison, optimism isn't the first <laughs> word that comes to, to mind, right? He's generally seen as a hard-headed realist, and and I think he was. Um, it's all it's also the fact that he lived so long. He lived to 1836, despite being a, a rather sickly hypochondriac. He lived 10 years beyond the other founders we've been discussing. Um, so he lives well into Andrew Jackson's second term as president. Which isn't, you know, the kind of raucous populist politics that Jackson embodied and represented surely wasn't to Madison's taste. And so I'll be honest, when I, I set out to write this book, I assumed Madison was disillusioned too. I assumed I was going to be writing this book about five disillusioned founders <laughs> right. and it was about, you know, finding the, the right theme for Madison. And I did know, I mean, he did have moments of doubt, especially during the nullification crisis in 1831, 1832. So I knew there were some kind of grumpy letters written late in his life. And I, I assumed, you know, I was going to find that he was just as disillusioned as the others were. But as I kind of dug in more and read all of his letters and other writings from, from late in life, it frankly just wasn't there. He was almost, uh, you know, defiantly uh, hopeful at the end of his life he, that he he really refused to despair in a way that the, the others didn't. And so I ended up flipping it around and saying, well, let, if he was the exception that proves the rule, why? Why why was he the exception? Um, and I have a chapter in which I, I speculate, I offer a number of different kind of conjectures. Um, and I, I do think it has to be a matter of conjecture. Um, I won't go through them all now, but I guess I can I can say a couple words about this. So part of it, I think, was just a, a matter of temperament. He was just much more even keel than the most of the other founders were, even if he didn't view the world in rose-tinted glasses, through rose-tinted glasses in the way that Jefferson so often did. It was it was really hard to upset him. Um, and so I think it, this kind of unflappable disposition led to uh, uh, a lack of despair on his part. I think it, part of it was also just that he had lived so long and seen so much, right? By the end, he had been, he had seen the Constitution and the Union survive for 50 years, a whole half century. And he had seen it survive a lot of what seemed at the time to be very troubling things. He saw it survive the Alien and Sedition Acts and the War of 1812 and the Missouri Crisis. And so he seemed to think, well, maybe it can survive a good deal more. I think for him, the more, the, the longer the nation endured, the more durable it seemed. Um, the last thing I'll say, and, and I have a couple other possibilities that I suggest in the book, but the last one I'll say here is, I think he just expected less than the other founders did, right? He did not expect the way Washington did that people would, you know, always, you know, avoid party and, and be disinterested. He didn't expect like Adams that people would put the public good ahead of their selfish interest. He didn't hope like Hamilton did, that the country would be this, you know, grand player on the world stage, you know, economic military powerhouse and compete with the European imperial powers on their own terms. Nor even for all of his friendship and similarities with Jefferson, did he really expect, you know, virtuous yeoman farmers to, to get together and conduct the politics of their local war, their, you know, their, their community. He just expected less, and that means he was less likely to be disappointed in what America became. So he, yeah, he really is the odd one out. Where by the end, he's um, almost defiantly optimistic about what America was and, and would continue to be. Do you think it's fair to say that 
part of that. I mean, like, what, you know, someone listening might say, like, oh, I mean, if you have low expectations, you don't expect much. But on the other hand, do you think it's fair to say that Madison is sort of someone that understood a little bit more than the others? And of course, you see, there's lots of things in terms of the longevity of his life and, and wisdom kind of play into that as well. But 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 having said all that, do you think it's fair to say that he's somebody that sort of understood in a little bit of a different way that the business of all of this was sort of never concluded, right? That this was sort of part of the Republic, that there would be frictions and that the institutions were there to deal with or being a republic that it wasn't just as you said going to be like the the beacon of military power on the hill or or this sort of utopia for farmers like he sort of understood that the 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 the, the tricky business of this governing situation it just it, it doesn't really end that's what happens yeah i think that's right and i think um i think he also was much more apt than the other founders to sort of take the largest possible view, which is to say, you know, rather than compare America to, you know, Jefferson has this ideal in his head about what a democracy or republic should look like. And then America doesn't match up to that deal. And so he's disappointed. I think Madison was much more likely to be, you know, to to think, well, he spent all this time studying history, right? Let's look at the other regimes throughout history. Let's look at the other regimes around the world. Well, if we use that as our benchmark, that as our basis of comparison, well, then the country looks quite a lot better, right? If we're not comparing it to some some utopia in our head. Um, so yeah, he's just much more hard-headed, I think, in that way than than some of the others are. He, he knows it's going to be, as you suggest, a, a never completed project, something that's always going to, to require... Um, further work and further tinkering. And I, I want to zoom out a little bit from the specific founders now and ask you a couple couple high-level questions. But one thing that I really like um, that you noted in the epilogue to the book is uh, John. there's a little story about John Adams who was talking to another uh, political figure, sort of, of of the next generation, if you will. And, and, he, le- and he let him in on a secret. And that, that secret is that he basically said, uh, as, as far as he's capable of, of seeing differences between both generations, that ultimately the messages, and I am paraphrasing the quotes in the book, it's, it's really great, but ultimately saying the younger generation is no more, uh, no more, no less wiser, better, more virtuous than ours was. And he was sort of hesitant. And I think this kind of ties all everything we've been talking about nicely together from the front to, to everything up until now that he was one of his worries as well, that people would look back and glamorize and idolize and, and deify this older generation of founders. When in reality, he basically said, look, uh, we we had our own bad people. We had our own terrible people. We had our own great people. But there's really no moral difference between the, the generations. He was talking to someone at the time, but that shows into his mind about what he thought about the generations to come as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think this is, you know, they were worried about what has arguably has happened, which is they, they, right. they didn't want to be seen as... You know this band of demigods who, who you know their their achievements are beyond criticism. That we just have to take their um, their word or their will as is sacrosanct. And I think that's one of the lessons I hope that readers take from the book is that when you know Americans are very tempted, much more tempted than the inhabitants of almost any other country I can think of, to think that you know the the founders of their country had it all right and that we, their their will or their intent must be obeyed in all things. Um, and, and, you know, we revere every word that comes out of their mouth, but, you know, they themselves didn't revere what they had created by the end of their lives. All but Madison are pretty deeply disappointed in the whole constitutional order. And so, you know, even if we're just being true to what they themselves said or thought, we have to take them whole. We have to look at their, their worries as well as their, um, 
you know, just the, the act of setting up the government. And one of the questions I want to ask you as well was what, what you think some of the founders w- would think now about the state of, of the United States. And of course, I don't I don't want to pull you through every single one and get into specific ones. I think anyone who reads the book and listens to this conversation can start thinking, you know, Jefferson, as you said in the book, would probably be unhappy that, you know, uh, to some degree that, you know, we have large urban centers and not, as you said, a utopia of farmers and things like that. But but what do you think? Um, and this might be a little difficult. You can say generally might more or less unify their ideas and attitudes if they were to see America today. I mean, you were starting down one train of thought, which is very important, which is some of them were probably not going to be too happy about some of the deification and the, the mythology around this period. Um, and anything, anything else you can think of that either by specific founder or just generally speaking that you, you'd like to highlight that they might think or see today when they look at the United States? Well, look, I mean, I think this you know, almost inarguable that all their worries are still with us, right? We still worry about partisan polarization. We still lack of, about a worry of, sorry, we still worry about a lack of civic virtue or civic engagement. We still worry about, you know, sectional divisions and and other things that, that Jefferson worried about. Hamilton's the, maybe the interesting one here, insofar as he wanted a country that was economically and militarily powerful, which the United States is, he wanted a very powerful government and and especially a powerful executive, which we have. On the other hand, even he wouldn't like, I don't think, the um, kind of, he's always worried about small d democracy or spirit of populism. And of course, um, the, the, the way politicians feel compelled to pander so continually to the people today might, uh, well, would certainly, I think, draw his ire. And also for all of the government size in the United States, I think he might still think it's not sufficiently vigorous or energetic insofar as it's so overwhelmingly difficult to pass major legislation. He would see it as it's feckless for all of its size and, and um, you know, p- potential capability. It just doesn't exercise that capability. So I think all of them would see, you know, some of their, their deepest fears still there, still, still very much there. I think Madison, though, would still say the same thing, though, which is, well, the country survived a half century by his time. Well, now it's survived 230 years. Well, the Constitution, I guess, has survived 230 plus years. Right. Um, it's endured a great deal more. And I guess, you know, we, we sort of sometimes paper over the Civil War to maintain this fiction of con- constitutional stability where, you know, the, it wasn't always stable. But um, for the most part, it's lasted well over two centuries. And so I think you know, Madison too might have a point in saying, well, let's look to the longer term, let's take a broader view and, and um, you know, see that for all of its worries, the, the government has endured. The, the starkest um, predictions of catastrophe among the founders, right? Many of them are saying, you know, saying pretty soon we're going to have to call a, consti- a second constitutional convention. We're going to lapse into hereditary monarchy. The country's going to split apart into separate confederacies. Obviously, none of that has has happened over the long run. So he might have, you know, a point to make too in terms of his, um, again, maybe a subdued optimism, but his optimism at the end of his life. At the, at the very least, what we can say is that. Uh, uh- any of them that were concerned with things collapsing within a generation, all that kind of exaggeration, for good or bad, that did not happen. So at the very least, we could say that. That's right. And that that um, and that you can take this in either direction, right? It's my, my epilogue, I, I'm ashamed to say, has a little bit of the typical academics, you know, on the one hand, but on the other type character, right? So we could take... I. I either lesson from this, we could say, you know, well, all the pr- problems are still with us, partisanship and, and so on are still with us. So... They're never going to go away. 
on the other hand, it seems like they're not likely to doom the Republic anytime soon. And we often hear that, I mean, especially during the last tumultuous election and during the very harrowing attack on the Capitol on January 6th. I mean, there have been dark days in the American Republic in, in very, very recent times. And during these times, we always hear, this is the end of democracy. This is the end of American democracy. I know people have said this in the past, but this time it really is the end of democracy as we know it. And I think Madison might say, look, people have said that for 230 years and it hasn't happened yet. Um, that there's not that there's nothing new under the sun, but that, um, you know, the, the country has lived with these problems for a very long time. Um, I, I was reminded the other day of a, a quotation. I read it in... Um, an essay by Ralph Waldo Emerson, but I think he attributes to someone else, maybe Fisher Ames, I think one of the founders. But in any case, the, the quote is something like, um, compares, you know, comparing a democracy in, uh, to a monarchy. And it says something like, a monarchy is like um, a great ship or a, a merchant vessel that sa sails very well, but every once in a while, it'll hit a rock and sink to the bottom. Whereas a democracy is like a raft, it will never sink, but then your feet are always in the water. And that's sort of the lesson I take from this, right? I don't think we're, it's going to sink, but our feet are going to stay wet. I mean, we're not, we're not going to solve it, given the, the problems have been with us from the very beginning. We sometimes think that if we just make the right tweak, right, if we if we get rid of the filibuster in the Senate or eliminate the Electoral College or, you know, whatever it might be, that, that ah, that's going to fix all of our, uh, all the things that ail us. And I don't think that either, right? So I, I think we're going to live with the problems, but our feet are going to be in the water. One sort of last one before we head to the formal wrap up. Time time has wound down and it's very fast. It goes fast when you're talking about this topic. It's, it's very interesting. Um, but one more question before we we wrap up. If if you could, if 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 one of the founders you could have back alive for one day in modern times, and you could tour them and spend a day with them and tour them around, show them what's happening in the United States, and discuss with them, pick their brain about what they thought at the time, also see their re reaction about the way they see things now, which one would you pick? Wow, that's hard because the, the, each one has would have something definitely to, to draw me to them and, and something not to. I mean, maybe Jefferson, just because he's such a complex character and it's, you know, I would like to pick his brain to try to figure out what the, what the heck he was thinking. Um, and a lot of the, you know, not just with slavery, but with the French Revolution. I mean, there's so many things with Jefferson that it's really hard to to figure out what, what he was really thinking. Um, on the other hand, Washington is such an august figure to, to meet him. But I, you know what? I think I might say Adams. I just think he might be the most fun to, to hang out with. As I say, I think he was the funniest. His kind of, I don't know, curmudgeonly nature appeals to me. Um, yeah, I'd have to think more about that. But uh, at the moment, I think I'm going to pick Adams. Cool. Yeah. yeah. It would definitely be interesting to talk to about his idea of how, how, how virtue or lack thereof has developed and to see what he would say about today. That'd be very interesting to, to hear his thoughts on that. Social media would be, you know, right up his alley, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. He probably would have some pretty good tweets. So, uh, you know, Dennis, our time has wound down here. It's a very interesting topic. As I said, it felt like it went, went very fast for me. So I'm sad to see it go. But, but we do have to bring it full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. And as, as you know, uh, I always want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word to do that uh, when we record together. So let me ask you officially, what, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether, especially considering the, the views of the founders, you know, our bigger question is, did America fail? But, but how, do, how do we tie that all back into the conversation and what you think the founders over, overall would say about what's the takeaway of our conversation? Yeah. I mean, I think the, um, 
I, I already did my, you know, on the one hand, but on the other thing. So I, I guess I'll conclude here where I conclude the book, which is that, you know, a flawless utopia is certainly beyond reach. We're not going to ever recreate what the founders had envisioned, um, in part because they envisioned different things, as we've been saying, you know, fulfilling Jefferson's vision would upset Hamilton and vice versa. Um, but, you know, the fact, that, the fact that we're not going to reach this, you know, utopia that, that um any of them had dreamed of, shouldn't let us off the hook and let us think, well, we just have to live with the problems. And I think in, in some ways, this is the temptation with the Madison type view is, well, our, you know, to go back to my quotation, our feet are in the water, we just have to live with, with them being wet. Um, you know, I think we should still work to improve the constitutional order. I, I think that's what they themselves did. Even after their disillusionment set in, they were all relentless in devoting themselves to the American Republic and doing everything they could to to further their vision. And so I think, you know, that would be their, their penchant for meeting disappointment with, um, with steadfast resolve is something we would do well to emulate in, in the midst of our own uh, problems and tribulation. And don't feel obligated to do so. I just want to leave it to you. Do, do you want to talk about your conclusion about whether the sun was rising or setting is, or should we leave that to people to go figure out for themselves when they read the book? Yeah, let, let's let's leave people to do that. I tell you what, you, you you alluded to that. I found that line. I left it in there. I found it so hokey. <laughs> like I, I wrote it. I, I've had a lot of people say that. I wrote it and, and I sent it to my editor and I was like, is this just too hokey to keep? And he was like, you know, I was standing up for my chair. I, you know, I was so whatever. So he, he urged me to keep it. And I was like, I guess so. I did, it was a little... <laughs> I, I was a little, uh, I was a little reluctant on that conclusion, to be honest with you. Fair enough. Okay, so we'll leave that to everybody else what, to figure out whether the sun was rising or, or is and was rising or setting in Dennis's mind. Uh, Dennis Rasmussen, thank you very much for joining me on the Curious Task today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 